Well, this morning we're uh, continuing as we've been looking at these five instincts. We're in the second of those instincts. So last week we spent quite a bit of time talking about sarcasm, which was really a conversation about maturity. What does it mean to receive the lessons that God is giving us, the way he's guiding us and shaping us, sometimes by discipline, sometimes by things we would rather avoid, but by following him, how we grow into those better things. And this morning, I want to look at the second of those instincts that we outlined across scripture, which is the instinct of adventure. Adventure. Uh, The travel industry has reported that adventure vacations are increasing in popularity by 65% a year, which makes it the fastest growing segment of the travel industry. So where once uh, we might say, hey, uh, pool down in Cabo sounds nice. Now we tend to be saying things like, let's go hike Mount Kilimanjaro or let's go adventure to Antarctica. These adventure vacations are becoming more and more prominent. According to the studies, the Adventure Travel Trade Association, which apparently exists, says that the number one reason travelers sought adventure for a vacation was a desire for personal transformation. Uh, it's not hard. It doesn't take a travel uh, industry trade study or even a degree in psychology to understand that we've long been interested in adventure, adventurous experiences for more than just the adrenaline rush. But we naturally connect this idea of doing great experiences, great things, achieving adventurous experiences as something connected to our sense of identity and purpose and meaning, that to have these meaningful and great experiences, we imagine, might produce in us meaning and and greatness in ourselves. Shakespeare described, as we've been using his stages of a man to guide us across these instincts, he described this second instinct, adventure, as the lover. And he wasn't just talking about romantic love, although that was certainly part of it. He was describing this kind of romantic perspective on life. That life is filled with romantic ideals of adventure and conquest and purpose and identity. Oftentimes, also being romantic love, Shakespeare described this stage of man as the thwarted lover, constantly looking for that thing of meaning and significance and yet struggling to find it and feeling lost in the process. Uh, One of the ways I like to give the example of it is, on my 30th birthday, looking ahead on the calendar several years ago, I, uh, I realized that my 30th birthday was going to fall on the opening day of Missouri turkey hunting season, which is always something I like to participate in. But as we were busy with the church and a home remodel and freelance business, and I took it as a sign, uh, maybe a gift from God, this was going to be a three or four day adventure. I took off work. It was me by myself at Ashley's uncle's farm. He has an old farmhouse there. And so I imagined uh, four days, I took a case of diet Coke and some frozen Mexican TV dinners because I could eat that kind of food back then. And uh, I was going to go have my adventure in the woods turkey hunting. And so uh, I remember that first morning opening day, I set decoys out and I was out in the field before the sun rose. And if you've ever turkey hunted, turkey hunting can be a multi-day process. Uh, Turkeys are way smarter than you think. I know they feed in your backyard and seem not that smart, but when you sit in the woods with a shotgun, it's amazing how often they figure it out before you. And so I had set up decoys and planned if I didn't work out the first day, I had several days before me. And so uh, as the sun began to rise, I let out the first call of the season. And I was surprised that two birds responded, booming gobbles in the river bottom right behind me. And as soon as they did, the whole river bottom sort of exploded in turkey gobbling, six, maybe seven birds. I was literally surrounded by them, which is hard to get in that situation. And just as quickly as they started gobbling, two birds flew right down in front of me immediately turned and started coming right to my decoys. 
And so I waited patiently until they were about 20, 30 yards out and was successful in taking, I'll spare you the details, taking one of these turkey. Uh, and I actually felt remarkably proud. This was, turkey hunting's hard to get right and it had all gone absolutely perfectly. And I looked down at my watch, it was 6.45 in the morning, the first day. Missouri turkey hunting regulations allow you to take one turkey in the first week. And so I realized I was done. <laughs> My three-day adventure had ended in 15 minutes, and so what did I do? I made coffee, packed everything up, and by two in the afternoon was back home answering emails and changing diapers and helping out. Uh, I celebrated my 30th birthday, this big adventure, with 15 minutes of adventure, and it felt like so often that is the kind of thing adventures are like in life. Big plans, big opportunities, the big things they'll deliver, and then in the end, they sort of fizzle out and end up being something less than we imagined they would be. Samson has always been the character in Scripture that struck me as this man driven by this impulse for adventure, for conquest, this heroic ideal of venturing off into new places and finding identity and meaning and purpose in this conquest. His story, if you know Samson's stories, are certainly adventurous. They even fit into this kind of motif in literature of these adventure quests. Samson's story is really a series of sub-stories, and each of those sub-stories plays out as a kind of adventure. Samson leaves, goes off in conquest, finds himself in trouble, is rescued from that trouble, and returns home. He fights with animals and men. He escapes the escalating conflicts of his life. It's full of sabotage and deception and lies. It's all there. Everything you could imagine from a great adventure playing out across Samson's life. Uh, Samson's story plays out over about four chapters in the book of Judges. This morning, I just want to look at one of those sort of adventurous stories and then hopefully show you, if you're familiar with it, how that same story plays out throughout Samson's life. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to go to Judges chapter 14. Judges chapter 14. I'm going to read through the whole chapter, which falls um, not long after Samson was born. It is really, in many ways, the first adventure of Samson's life that plays out. And it becomes, in many ways, the archetype, the sort of uh, repeated narrative that plays out across all of his life. So it's a good place for us to look for it. So Judges chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah. Timnah was one of the Philistine cities. And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all the people that you you must go down to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. A phrase we're going to come back to. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave gave some to them, and they ate. 
But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of a lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. And as soon as the people saw him, they brought thirty companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes. And they said to him, Put your riddle, that we may hear it. And he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you, lest we burn you in your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people, and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, and I shall tell you. She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted, and on the seventh day he told her, because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day, before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down thirty men of the town, and took their spoil, and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. That's a strange story, right? Can we all agree on that one? Uh, Samson's life plays out like that over and over again. This little adventure. He goes down, he sees something in some other place, he finds himself in trouble, the conflict that requires his heroic strength to rescue himself. And then as also is true across these Samson stories, the moment of disappointment, where somehow that heroic tale, that adventure he had imagined is spoiled or thwarted or fails to play out the way he had imagined. That opening line of Samson's story is an important one. It's repeated twice in just this chapter. Samson saw a girl in Timnah who was, quote, right in his own eyes. If you'd spent time reading through the entire book of Judges, you'd recognize that that phrase is central to the book of Judges in this time that Israel found themselves in. The idea was Israel, settling now in the promised land, trying to scrape out a living and decide who they were as a people, a nation in this new land, routinely came back to this phrase and did what was right in their own eyes. It became a way of characterizing who Israel was as they slowly began to disconnect their identity from God and do what seemed best to them, what seemed right by their own estimations. Here, that same phrase gets described to Samson. Samson does what seems right does what seems good, what looks enticing to him. In this case, a girl he met in Philistia. It's easy to think of Israel during this time as a kind of advanced people. Most of us have some sort of deference for Israel. It's God's people. He's led them through wilderness by a pillar of fire and a cloud. But the period of Judges finds Israel in one of its most difficult times. They had captured portions of the Promised Land, but not all of it. And they found themselves without a king, 
without any temple where their worship was centralized, without an army that would defend them. Instead, Israel was this sort of confederation of loosely connected tribes who were trying to figure out how to survive, and most often being pillaged and raided by their neighbors. In this case, we're told it was the Philistines who ruled over them. Often, if you read through the book of Judges, the way it went is as soon as Israel had enough of a harvest that they had built in the hill country, all of a sudden these raiding parties from Philistia or others would come through and steal all that Israel had, had been able to grow. Israel, without defense, was stuck, impoverished, and forced to either pay off or somehow hide what they were able to grow. The Philistines, by comparison, who are often in our minds a sort of backwards people, it's not the case at this point in the history. The Philistines, as compared to the Israelites, impoverished and just trying to survive in the hills, the Philistines had carved out major metropolitan cities in the land, the plains along the Mediterranean below the Israelites. The Philistines at this time were considered to be advanced and had a sort of exotic culture for the area. We think the Philistines were actually ancient Greeks before Greek was a thing. They were called the Aegeans. They had migrated there from the sea, and they had brought with them all of these unique customs that were new and exotic to the region. They were also famous for their metalwork. They had innovations in metal technology that gave them huge advantages on the battlefield, and all of it had accumulated in massive wealth that had led them to build what at the time were these five major cities ruled by these great Philistine kings. So it's easy to see how someone like Samson, a boy growing up in this sort of marginalized Israelite culture, probably hiding most of his life, just trying to survive in the hills, would have looked down on the plains beneath him along the Mediterranean and seen these great cities with their technology and their wealth and their exotic cultures. It's not hard to imagine how a young man like Samson might have become enamored with it all. And after all, add to it the fact that Samson was a Nazarite. He was given this vow, not by his own choice, but if you turned back a chapter, an angel had appeared to his mother and instructed her to raise him as a Nazarite, that he was not to cut his hair, he was to avoid any contact with a corpse, or to avoid anything that came from a grape, like wine. So here's Samson, already a part of this smaller, marginal people, now being forced by his mother's encounter with an angel to live out this even more bizarre lifestyle in the midst of Israelites. Is it hard to imagine why Samson might have found himself constantly looking down at Philistia? Why he would have seen things in Philistia that seemed right in his own eyes, better to him, more adventurous to him, more significant than the way he was growing up. So, Story after story, Samson kept going down into these Philistine towns, down into the Philistine people. One of the major themes of Samson's stories is the way in which he was led by his senses. He sees things, he hears things, feels things. It's his emotions and senses that drive him into these adventures one after another. Samson's stories, these little adventure stories, follow this same pattern and play out in the same way over and over like they do here in chapter 14. Samson sees something, he desires it, and he leaves home and family and place in search of it. He goes off in this adventurous conquest and and the process finds himself in danger. In danger, he is suddenly overcome with the spirit and finds himself given superhuman strength to rescue himself from that moment. 
Samson also, time and time again, seems to waste that spirit-given strength. Here, he turns it into a riddle that he uses to gamble for clothing with the drunken friends at his wedding feast. At other times, he will turn it into songs, boasting of his own power. Over and over, as Samson is given these miraculous experiences in the midst of these adventures, his conclusion is a kind of self-centered display or a trivializing of the thing God is doing in the midst of it. Of course, if you know Samson's story, the final piece of his story is the cutting of his hair, the betrayal of Bathsheba, or excuse me, the betrayal of Delilah, who he loved. And as Delilah betrayed him and cut away his hair, like had played out in all of those smaller ways, Samson's big adventure sort of fizzled out in ways he hadn't expected. Not only did he cut his hair, abandoning that piece of his calling to be a Nazarite, but also he found himself, like in this story, scraping honey out of the carcass of a lion, a dead thing, picking up the jawbone of a donkey, slaying so many men with his own bare hands, violating this prohibition against corpse. Over and over he finds himself, by no small irony, in vineyards, even though he was prohibited from the grape. And even this feast that he finds himself Gambling over this riddle in the Hebrew has all of the innuendos of drunkenness and festivities and a Philistine party. So the big question of Samson's life is why does he keep doing it? Why, when these stories play out over and over in destruction and loss, all of the things he saw taken from him, betraying him, what is it that compels Samson to keep doing it? keep going to the same places that fail to deliver, to keep risking his life, to be like the people who only turn again and again to betray him. I think it's important to recognize how powerful this instinct of adventure is. The hope that adventure, the right one, eventually one of them, will fill us with that sense of a meaningful life, that it will make us a person of meaning, that these experiences— big, grand experiences will somehow grow us and enlarge our lives as well. But in Samson's story, over and over, the opposite seems to happen. It's not hard to see how this instinct for adventure plays out in our own day and in our own culture. You don't just have to be an ancient man going off to conquest, to fight armies and rescue yourselves in Philistine cities. We have this same impulse and this same cultural narrative that drives us to identify ourselves and build our life around adventurous experiences. If for some of you, you say, that sounds like a young man's game, I gave up on that a long time ago, don't underestimate how much this cultural narrative is impacting the way your kids and grandkids think about their own life, their own value, their own identity, their own future. Uh, There was a writer in the middle part of the 20th century named Joseph Campbell, who you've probably never heard of, but certainly you've been impacted, your grandkids and kids impacted by. Campbell was described himself as a mythologist. In other words, the work that he did was he traveled all over the world to remote people groups. He collected and wrote down their myths, the stories of their religions, and he combined them into what he called the monomyth, the single myth that incorporated all of the great stories across cultures and time. Uh, Here's the way he describes that monomyth. He says, the usual hero adventure begins with someone from whom something has been taken or who feels there's something lacking in the normal experiences available or permitted to them. This person then takes off on a series of adventures beyond the ordinary, either to recover what has been lost or to discover some better life-giving elixir. 
Campbell referred to that little narrative as the call to adventure, that we find ourselves sort of held back by tradition and place and family, something missing from our identity or our experience. And so we find ourselves compelled to go, to leave, and to go find something better, more meaningful out there. Campbell writes, Our life has become so economic and practical in its orientation that as you get older, the claims of the moment upon you are so great, you hardly know where you are or what it is you intended at the beginning. You are always doing something that is required of you by someone else. The religious people, Campbell writes, tells us we don't really experience bliss until we die and go to heaven. But I believe in having as much of it as you can, this experience, while you're still alive. If you do follow your bliss, you put yourself in a kind of track that has been there all the while, waiting for you. And the life that you ought to be living is the one you are. I say, follow your bliss and don't be afraid. Now, maybe that sounds a little silly to you. Thank you, Joseph Campbell, for telling me to follow my bliss. Usually I'm just trying to figure out what to order for lunch. I'm not sure exactly what my bliss is or how clear it is to follow. But that cultural idea is far more pervasive than you probably realize. Time Magazine named Campbell's book one of the 100 most influential books of all time. And they named his book Influential partly because of the massive impact it's had on other writers and movies since. All of the writers and producers of movies from Star Wars to Harry Potter to basically every Disney movie that you or your kids watch have pointed back in some interview or at some place to talk about how Campbell's work, this idea of the call to adventure, shaped the way they tell stories. It really is, if you stop and think about it, just about everywhere in the way that we're consuming stories in our culture. One of the best examples, all the parents in the room will have seen it a million times, is the story Moana, to give you a little bit of a piece of it. If you've seen that movie, the plot is a girl leaves home, held back by her family and their traditions and her traditional responsibilities there, but she recognizes to realize who she really is, her true unique identity, she has to leave that place and go on some quest, some adventure to find out the truth of who she is. And that by this adventure, she not only discovers who she is, but also begins to rightfully understand who everyone else is around her. It strikes me as interesting how many of these stories don't actually have villains, good versus evil, but the evil of the stories is a mistaken identity, somebody who isn't understood by the world around them. And so by this adventurous quest, she comes to understand who she really is. That's basically the storyline of Star Wars. It's basically the storyline of Encanto, if your kids are watching that right now. Almost every story that culture is telling us is built on this idea that culture and tradition and place is holding you back, and you have to go on an adventure, a big experience to discover who you really are. My point is that it's everywhere. Follow your dreams. Trust your heart. Life is short. Make every moment count. My most profound experience of this was several years ago when we visited Disney. Will was small enough that he was on my shoulders at the time, and we were standing uh, in a large crowd. It was pre-COVID, before uh, the Cinderella's Castle light show at the end of the night, which is unbelievable, by the way, the way they project onto the castle. And over the top, there's swelling music that's tying together Disney stories. And the voiceover, I went back and found the YouTube video. The voiceover, my kid sitting on my shoulders, enamored by this, the voiceover says, each of us has a dream a heart's desire. It calls to us. And when we are brave enough to listen, bold enough to pursue it, 
That dream will lead us on a journey to discover who we are meant to be. All we have to do is look inside our hearts and unlock the magic within. Your destiny lies within you. You just have to be brave enough to see it. That is, in so many ways, the cultural narrative that our kids and many of us grew up in. It is adventure, bliss, those inward pulls and desires to something better that leads you to your true identity, your true purpose, your true meaning. Perhaps that idea is so pervasive, it's hard for some to imagine that there could be any other way of living that would provide meaning or value or purpose. In Samson's story, that is the the impulse, the desire that he seems again and again to live by. He sees something or feels something or desires something and adventures off away from the backwards traditions of family and home for something bigger and better, something more uniquely him. But as we read Samson's story, what we soon discover is that he does not become a bigger person. He does not become more enlightened. His life does not take on greater meaning or purpose, but instead, what purpose and meaning and identity he does have is slowly and consistently sacrificed, lost. By the end, Samson doesn't seem like a wise world traveler with great experiences beneath his belt. Instead, he seems dull and dumb and naive as he watches everything he had trusted slowly betray him and finally offers his life into the hands of a woman who seems pretty obviously to be betraying him also. That theme of betrayal is the final conclusion of Samson's story. Samson and Delilah. He loved her, and as we see very quickly, she had been paid off for a sum of money to betray him and discover the secret. Maybe you remember that story. Most of us remember it as she tricked him into giving away his secret. It's a little more complicated than that. Three times she asked for his secret. Each time he gave her a kind of part truth He would then be surprised to find assassins waiting in the shadows who jumped out and tried to seize him. Each time, he was filled again with strength and fought them off. I'm just pointing out, the first two times might have been coincidence, but by the third time, you have to be wondering if Delilah's in on it. But he doesn't seem to recognize it. For the fourth time, she pressed him, tell me your whole heart. You don't love me. If you loved me, you would be completely honest with me. Samson does, not tricked into it, but he confesses everything, who he is, his unique calling, his hair, the symbol of that purpose that God had given him from birth. And there's an interesting line in the Samson and Delilah story that hangs in the middle. Samson tells her, if you cut off my hair, I will be like every other man. In many ways, it's a statement of fact. If you cut off my hair, this superhuman strength will be gone. But it's hard not to sense in Samson's words a kind of longing, a kind of desire to be done with everything that had made him unique, this divine calling that he had been over and over so quick to let go of, his hair, the one piece of it that really remained. Was Samson not longing for maybe that too to be gone, to just be able to be normal, to be like the Philistines he so admired? It sounds like longing to me. Samson seems exhausted and tired, and ready to be done with any of the peculiarness which characterized his life and his place. And so, he tells Delilah everything, probably knowing that she was in on it, 
but he's done, checked out. When the Philistines once again pounced, Samson discovered that his strength was gone with his hair. She had betrayed him, but in so many ways, it's a symbol for the way in which Samson over and over had betrayed himself, had lost himself, had given up all of the things that had made him unique in this desperate search to find his own unique identity. As the Philistines captured Samson, they chained him to a wall. Suddenly, this adventurous life of the man who kept wandering off to Philistia came to an end. He now found himself fixed in one place. They gouged out his eyes, those eyes that had begun his story by seeing what was right to himself. No one came to his rescue. This calling to lead Israel had been lost. They shaved off his hair, strength gone. They forced him to grind wheat in the temple to Dagon, the great god of the Philistines. His sense of calling and his representation of Israel's God lost too. Samson's adventure does not end in him being greater. It doesn't end in his life being larger or more meaningful. It ends with him looking completely undiscerning of the things that were actually happening around him. How could he be surprised that God's strength was gone when he himself had just forfeited it? But this is the complexity of this instinct. It never fully delivers the things it promises. It takes more from us than we imagined we would have to give. It leads us to places we didn't think we would go. And the whole time as we pursue it, this great identity, this great life of meaning and purpose, our commitments become weaker and weaker. We lose more and more. I want to suggest to you that this endless need for a greater adventure, a greater identity, bigger and better things in your life, this obsession to discover your true, unique self. I want to suggest to you that it is a trap. In the, in the end, when it is blindly indulged, like in Samson's story, it betrays you. It doesn't deliver the thing that it promised. It will make you more confused. It will make you less wise about yourself and the world around you. And it will leave you not in a bigger world, but a cramped world of your own self-obsessions and insecurities. So the big question, what is the alternative? Are we destined to this? Uh, By the way, I'm not saying don't watch Disney movies. I'm just letting you know this is so pervasively the world we live in that it's hard to entertain how there could be another way of living a meaningful life. We need a better form of discernment. We need a way, unlike Samson's dullness that couldn't see what God was doing over and over, even as God's strength flooded him with miraculous power, we need a way to develop the kind of discernment that allows us to see what God is doing in our life. That kind of discernment takes commitment, the kind of commitment that Samson seemed constantly to struggle with. Discernment is subtle. It forces us to see things and recognize signs that are there, but because of our impulse to go and leave, we so often miss. If you pay close attention to Samson's story, it is not just a story of a man constantly wandering off, but it is filled with these divine clues and hints, the moments of the Spirit's power, that for Samson, with enough discernment to see them, was the very thing he was looking for, meaning and purpose and identity and calling. There's one of them here, right in the middle of Samson's story we read from in chapter 14. Of course, there's the dramatic image of Samson tearing apart a lion, discovering for the first time that great strength 
But Samson doesn't tell anyone of it, goes back to the thing he was doing, going back along with his own plans. It is interesting that the next time he passed through that place, he found himself turning to find the carcass of the lion, as if he remembered there was something about that moment he wanted to relive or re-experience. But this time, Samson found something unexpected in the midst of it. He turned, and he found within the carcass of that lion bees, honeybees. They had built a hive within the carcass of the lion, and there was now honey flowing out of the carcass. Strange. It's even more strange the way the Hebrew specifically tells that story, because it uses unexpected words that don't always come through in the English. Specifically, what Samson saw was the ruin of the lion and a unique word, a congregation of bees, the same word that over and over is used to describe the people of Israel, the congregation of Israel. It is, in so many ways, a kind of image, a puzzle perhaps. But if Samson had stuck with it long enough, it's not hard to see how this might have been a symbol, something God was offering him, that with just enough discernment was what he was looking for, a future, an identity, a purpose. Would Samson, by his calling, not be the one that, like he had brought about the ruin of the lion, would bring about the ruin of the Philistines? And would he not, like he had provided a place for this congregation of bees, by doing so, bring about this place for the congregation of Israel, a land flowing with milk and honey? What Samson had done there by that moment of divine strength was a symbol, a discernible taste of the bigger thing that was to be done with his life, in which he would rescue and lead his people as one of the great judges. That had been there from the very beginning, and over and over those hints, those clues, those experiences piled up in Samson's life, but what he lacked was enough discernment to see them to savor them, to hold on to them and ponder them. Over and over, he does what he does here. He sees this puzzle, he scrapes the honey out, eats it, and goes on along his way. He takes the image, and he uses it as a riddle to gamble for clothes at a drunk party. He takes the wonderful and miraculous things God is doing in his life, and dull and undiscerning of them, wastes them and trivializes them. Over and over, that plays out in Samson's life. What Samson failed to realize was the very adventure he was looking for, he had already been born into. The life of purpose and meaning and calling had been his from birth. What he couldn't see was that the very life he imagined as small and boring and backwards was the thing he was constantly out searching and looking for. He needed a better discernment to allow him to recognize that God was already doing it. The French novelist Proust put it this way, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. The real call to adventure, the real work of adventure, is recognizing the one that is already underway by God's calling, by God's purpose, by God's plan, in all of the small and non-obvious ways that most of our lives usually feel. Discernment requires a certain amount of commitment to recognize that. Character takes time. Discernment takes time. It takes collecting up all of these details, these bits and pieces, and by the power of the Spirit, beginning to sense God doing something more in them than you or others might have recognized. We have to commit to this place that we've been given, 
to this life we find ourselves in the midst of, the people around us, the work that God has given us to do, not despising it or longing for something better, but searching it, discerning in it how God is at work. We have to train our own eyes, not just to see what is good to us, but to begin seeing what God is doing, what is good in him. One of my favorite examples from this, I'm preaching on adventure, so you can forgive me for quoting from Lord of the Rings one time. Uh, If you've read Lord of the Rings, or there's a scene similar to it in the movie, Frodo finds himself near Mordor, that place at the very end. He went to destroy the ring, but he finds himself overwhelmed by the enormity of the task, and he finds himself struggling and beat down by how long it had taken and how overwhelming the journey had been. Tolkien calls it the dark hour of weariness. Him and his friend Sam sat down there in the shadows of that great mountain, having come so far, but still so far to go. And all of a sudden, Frodo, who throughout the book seems to be the one person who is consistent and steadfast, he begins to fall apart. He begins to curse the ground. He begins to curse the task. Everything about this story he finds himself in, overwhelmed by the anxiety of it. His friend Sam steps in as they begin to have a conversation about how this doesn't feel like the adventure they had imagined. Sam says to him, we shouldn't be here at all if we had known more about it before we started, but I suppose it's often that way. The brave things in the old tales and songs, adventures as I used to call them, I used to think that they were things the wonderful folk of the stories went out and looked for because they wanted them because they were exciting and their life was a bit dull. But that's not the way of it with the tales that really matter or the ones that stay in the mind. Folks seem to have just been landed in them. Usually their paths were laid out that way, as you put it. But I expect they had lots of chances like us of turning back, only they didn't. And if they had, we shouldn't have known because they would have been forgotten. I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. I wonder, said Frodo, but I don't know, and that's the way of a real tale. I wonder that story about all of us, us together, you individually. What sort of tale is this that you have fallen into? And the truth is, not knowing is usually how those real tales feel feel when you're in the middle of them. The middle of any great story is a terrible place to start drawing conclusions about what that story means and is. You haven't reached the end. You don't know how it will play out. So often the best stories in the middle of them just feel hard, feel stuck, feel pointless. That's the way Sam and Frodo sitting in that place understood their own moment. We, reading the story and making it to the end, recognize how close they were. And so it is with all of our lives. It's hard in the midst of this place and this time to draw those kind of evaluations the eternal consequences, the deeper meaning, the purpose. You're in the middle of that story. Some things can't be known until far into the end. Samson's story luckily doesn't end with just his defeat. It is tragic, the way Samson is finally beaten, betrayed both by Delilah and himself. But there is more, small, a little piece, but for those willing to discern it and recognize it, something pretty profound at the end of his life. Samson, chained up in that dungeon, began to pray that God would vindicate him. 
that he would not allow this loss, this betrayal, to be the final conclusion of his life. And God gave him that. He was brought out, tied between two pillars and one of the great temples to Dagon, put on display as a kind of mockery. And in that moment, once again, Samson's strength came upon him as he tore down that temple. His life was lost, the Philistines there along with his. It wasn't in the end so much a symbol of Samson's strength as it was a final and ultimate statement that the Philistines' God was not bigger than Israel's God, that the life Samson was meant to have represented was not fully wasted, but God was capable of making his name great even in the midst of Samson's failures. But there's one line in the midst of that story that has always stood out to me as perhaps the most profound. Samson in that dungeon, chained to a wall, eyes gouged, forced to work. As he prayed this prayer of vindication, there's a simple line that reads, but the hair began to grow back on his head. It's subtle, unnoticed. I imagine with Samson's arms chained to the wall, perhaps he didn't even know it was there. After all, hair is not something that we can make grow. Some of you know that more than others. But yet it is ours, it is us. But yet we don't control it, can't force it. One day, by God's doing, these processes at work within Samson, the hair was there again. It could be cut off, but God's work cannot ultimately be lost. Samson, who had again and again and again betrayed the work that God wanted to do in him, found himself in that moment, not by his own power or by his own strength, not by bearing down and forcing that miraculous hair to grow back out of his scalp again, but by God's grace, found hair back on his head, and with it, that miraculous strength and purpose and identity. For Samson, the real meaning was that grace unnoticed, That there was grace powerfully present there at work in him. Though even in that moment he may not have saw it. He might not have been able to plan his future based on it. He might not have even anticipated. Still, it was there. I want to say to you this morning that there is no such thing as a small, meaningless life. Not by God's calling or by God's purpose or by God's plans. There is no boring place, no unimportant life. There is no life by God's calling that is meaningless or wasted. Even Samson's, who over and over threw it all away in that final moment by God's grace, found God's better purposes for him. All of our lives are just undiscerned conclusions. Bits and pieces that ultimately and finally in eternity will lock into place, into purpose, and meaning and significance that is hard on this side of eternity to realize. The task given to each of us, to our children, to our grandchildren, is not to waste all of this evidence of God's work, constantly wandering off and trying to create something better for ourselves, but to humble ourselves, to commit ourselves to this place, these people, this work God has given us, to pray for new eyes and better discernment for what God is doing, And ultimately, to receive it. To be able to say in the midst of whatever life we've been given, thank you. There is more here than even I realize in this moment. And so we look closer. We find details, evidence of the Spirit at work. And that gratitude, that thanks, grows into better and truer worship. Your identity is not ultimately something you build 
or construct or make. It is ultimately something you receive. That final lesson that Samson himself came to realize, to discern, that God has a story already at work, an adventure if you want to call it that, though it may not often feel like an adventure. By his grace it is, and one day we'll see it for everything that it is. For now, we commit to it, we humble ourselves, and we try to discern all the evidences of it. It's ours by his grace. Let's close in prayer this morning, and then we'll worship together. Heavenly Father, we all know firsthand how easy it is to be obsessed with what we want out of this life. God, to take all kinds of estimates of our own life, its value and its significance, what we've achieved and what we haven't achieved. God, we know what it is to be bogged down by a sense of failure, a sense of smallness, of disappointment. And yet we recognize by your grace that there is always more going on than what we perceive. That by your eternal perspective, there is more at work in these moments and in these lives that we can discern. So that we pray you would, like you did for Samson, God, give us bits and pieces of it. And give us new eyes, new senses to be able to discern the ways you are at work in our life. The way in which your grace and your goodness is doing good things within us. God, we pray that you would rescue us from this way of the world that constantly makes us feel like we're failing or not big enough or great enough, constantly weakening our commitments. But we would be like you, humbling ourselves, taking on flesh, taking on this smallness of life and finding in it bigger and better things, your kingdom at work, your grace at work in us. So this morning we do it by humbling our own hearts, by saying thank you for this life, for all of its complexities and its disappointments and its frustrations, that this, by your plans and by your purposes, you have led us into. And so we receive it and we commit ourselves to it. And we pray that in that process, in that better commitment, you would shape us and mature us, give us a sense of contentment, a sense of how you are at work in our lives, that we might worship you and glorify you in better ways, not desperate ways to get what we want, but ways with hands open receiving and sensing and seeing more of your spirit at work within us. God, we have so far to come in seeing it. So many gifts you give that just go unnoticed in our lives. So quiet our hearts, and this morning, by the power of your spirit, let us sense some of them, that we might worship you anew. It's in your name we pray. Amen.